welcome back to another Fox Fox Heroes episode. I still have to get used to saying Heroes and how to be But of course, there is plenty of WSL games to talk about, especially Chelsea City, Arsenal Spurs. Jesse did the running order, and of course, they put Chelsea first. I'm not going to comment on that. That was the best game of the weekend, no? It. I don't know. Usually we go, you know, in order to avoid bias, but I see this time you know, completely threw that out the window. We'll also be going through the rest of Europe, going through Hoffenheim, Wolfsburg, and of course, the biggest headline of last weekend in Spain was Jorge Villa. But of course, we'll we'll start going through the matches. Um, Barcelona, obviously, we have to talk about that. Might be Leon goal. So, Jesse. Do you want to tell me how you're feeling after going to King's Meadow yesterday to watch Chelsea? I think I feel more positive than maybe some Chelsea fans did. I think it obviously felt even more important to win, I think, after Arsenal's performance the day before. Even though I didn't think Arsenal really had to be very good, but, you know, we can get into that in a bit. Uh, but generally, I thought I thought both teams were much improved on on their opening week. But I think Chelsea were generally pretty good. There were still like improvements to be made. But I think it's easy to look at like City having been a bit shit and just be like, City are just a normal team. But I don't think City and Chelsea will ever have. You can't take away the history of like that fixture just because City are being a bit shit at the moment and like ultimately they still are a team of. Of very good players even if they're not necessarily very well managed so you know I think Chelsea looked a lot more structured I think they looked a lot more exciting going forward than they did against Liverpool and I think it was probably just about a fair result I think Chelsea did deserve to win but there were points where especially in the first half where it felt quite even but yeah I'm happy and the funny thing is is we've rearranged our opening day fixture for, for Wednesday so if we were to beat West Ham I say well because who knows? So Evans hat trick coming. Yeah, exactly. We but that we would then be on six points as well. And so it's that funny thing where we wouldn't be chasing Arsenal, like Arsenal would have this game in hand, which is against City. So I don't know, I think it'll be quite interesting to see how that fixture rescheduling um works out. Yeah, it was definitely interesting. I think the most interesting aspect of it was kind of the positions and the players in the positions. Obviously Magda Eriksson at left back. Kanisha Buchanan and Millie Bright at centre back pairings with Marin Milda. But okay, here's here's the tough question of the Chelsea back four. Is Emma Hayes going to revert to this permanently? And are we gonna see Magda Eriksson at left back? I'm keen on it. I thought it was good. Do you think it gives you more security? More than like because this is back three, you obviously have Magda Kanisha Bright with a freaking banging back three to have but is the four more security in terms of how Chelsea are kind of counter-attack sometimes yeah I think definitely you know the worry in this game is was Lauren Hepp and Chloe Kelly because yeah that's kind of historically been Chelsea's vulnerability right those tricky wingers and I think the back three it's never felt like we've quite got our spacing right to defend against those kinds of players. And I think that's partially because we don't have any real wing backs. So you don't necessarily have players who are going to be able to drop back and like defend really well and go forward and do like the attacking. We've either got like a Guru Raisin, who's obviously just a winger, who's like decent at defending, but isn't going to like defend perfectly. 
or you've got a player like Jess Carter who's a defender so then you lose like what's going forward and I thought I thought both Magda and Marin had very very good games um really and I think especially for Marin Mielder it felt very impressive because she's obviously had quite a strange um year or so like with her injury and then you know having an absolutely awful Euros captaining Norway and there was an element where I was just like she's just going to be a bench player for the for this season and that like that that would have been fine I think but I think to come into this game and I think there were a couple of times where Lauren Hemp like dispossessed me elder but she read the game so well and like Hemp just couldn't get into it at all. Um, I think Lauren Hemp's parents, Lauren Hemp's and Hayley Rasso's parents were sat in front of me as well, which was quite funny. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I like the back four personally. Okay. I just went on, on Sky Sports app and to see the lineup and they put it as a three, four, one, two with Marin Milde in the midfield and Lauren James and Sam Kerr as the top two. I think this lineup confused a lot of people, didn't it? To be fair, yeah, because players are out of position. But yeah, essentially. So for the listeners that kind of don't don't want to rely on Sky Sports app, it was a back four with Marion Mielder, Millie Bright, Kadisha Buchanan, Magda Eriksson as the left back. And then it was Aaron Cuthbert, Jesse Fleming, and then Lauren James, Gura right in out on the wings, and Fran and Sam up top. Yeah, pretty much. And then kind of like out when Chelsea were out of possession. Sam and Fran sort of pressed as a two. I mean, maybe we'll come on to like Chelsea's lack of pressing. So it kind of looked like a 4-4-2, but then in possession, Fran was kind of dropping a bit deeper. And I guess like for me, I felt like the turning point in this game was that in the first kind of 30 minutes or so, Lauren James was just playing like as a pure right winger. But Chelsea were building up entirely through their left-hand side. So it was just like... Khadija Buchanan playing to Magda, playing to playing up to Guru Wrighton and trying to kind of exploit the space in behind Kirsten Kasparai. And then that kind of was going quite well for about 15 minutes. And then City kind of starts to like relax and get a bit more into the game. And they were like getting a really strong, strong foothold. And, and Chelsea were kind of really struggling to, they were playing the ball out from the back from like deeper and deeper. And this kind of happened quite a lot. Chelsea were like, AKB was like standing on her line to play the ball, like to Millie Bright, who was on the byline. But obviously at some point, Hayes just told Lauren James like to fuck it and like just go where she wanted to go. So you then kind of had this thing where we were almost playing two tens really in kind of Kirby and James and, and no one on the right wing. But it just totally changed the game because Lauren was just one. She's so good. I feel like I'm going to say this every game she plays. I was trying, I was watching the match with my dad next to me and I was trying to explain Lauren James and I was like, I can't. Everything she does just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And she looked like she she's ru- she's running with the ball at full speed and she looks like she's walking. I know. Like it makes no sense. It's the casualness of what she does. She'll just it looks like she's like strolling with the ball, suddenly just does like a little cut in, cut back, does a little dance with the ball and then shoots this powerful ball that comes out of nowhere. Like it it genuinely makes no sense how Lauren James is as a footballer. Like, not in a bad way. It's just, like, she does everything with such casual... Like, she's just strolling through a park, just playing, like, football casually with her mates. And she manages to be at the best level and just doesn't make any sense. Also, what I will say is that, you know, taking the season off... Like, I mean, I don't know like, how she's going to... She's going to cope with the minutes she might get. But I will say, physically, Lauren James is the only person in the Chelsea team who was able to... Bu- body bunny shore off the ball 
And like, that's it as well. It's like, she's hench. Like, she can hold off players too. I forgot the minute of it, but at one point, Bunny Shaw had her back to Millie Bright, pushed Millie Bright back, controlled the ball with her chest, turned and did a half volley. And you, you're just kind of there and like, uh, okay, you, you just pushed Millie Bright off the ball with your back and still managed to control the ball with your chest and then do a half turn volley. Please tell me how that makes any sense. If I go up against Millie Wright, I'm ending up on the floor. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. Absolutely. Yeah, but do you, what did you make of kind of Man City, I guess especially their midfield, like bringing Dana Castellanos in to kind of play as an eight over, I, I guess, Philippa Angledal started there against Villa and Mary Fowler came on. I still don't know what I think about Dana Castellanos because like, I've known about her for a very very long time because she was the best footballer in South America at one point when she was like 17 you know she won FIFA awards over I remember there was an outbreak when Dana Castellanos won a FIFA award over Carly Lloyd Mm. and that was like a big like she was that good you know she was you know Venezuela they're never gonna get anywhere like on a football worldwide level but she was carrying that team she scores goals like no tomorrow um, so at one point, you know, she was going to be the next big thing in the world of football globally. And then she went to university in the States. Then she obviously went to Atletico Madrid right after she graduated. And at Atletico Madrid, Madrid she kind of plateaued. And obviously, you know, the Spanish league has been hard to watch. So I haven't been able to actually follow her that closely. But I don't know if it's the fact that the team didn't suit her style of play or if it's her that's kind of just plateaued and she's not really reaching her maximum potential. But at City, she has room to grow. I mean, look, Garrett Taylor has not many options in the midfield. And I personally prefer Andegal in the midfield. But Diana Castellanos, you know, she's still a promising player, but she hasn't picked up a good rhythm in so, so long. And especially coming into a new team under a coach that's probably not going to help you much to adapt into a new league, you know, playing against a Chelsea when you have to play against, you know, Aaron Cuthbert in the midfield, which is obviously a handful. I don't know if she's ready enough to perform at this level. You know, Laia Alexandri is a bit different because of her position. But when you're asking for Dana Castellanos to play against Chelsea in an eight role. That's, you know, that that is a big ask, especially if City claim that they like to play from the back. It is a big deal and it is a big responsibility, especially, you know, when you have Caroline Weir there before, for example, it's not really an easy task to, to kind of take on. But yeah, I think, I don't think she's in the rhythm to be what City need her to be in the sense that City are bad and they need a midfield ASAP. But yeah, I don't know. What did you think of Laia Alexandri? Because obviously that her positioning at Atletico Madrid, she was a centre-back. But obviously with Rila and, and kind of different games here and there, she's been playing as a pivot. But what did you think of her there? Yeah, I mean, I feel like this game was kind of hard to judge that kind of setup just because Chelsea were so reluctant to press, which I found really strange. Like they started the first 10 minutes pressing really high and City looked about as rattled as they looked against Villa last week. And then they kind of sat off a lot more, which meant that, I mean, I thought like Alexandre kind of looked fine. But that being said, I don't think they were very good at progressing the ball still. I think that remains a problem. Like, if you look at City's best chances in 
in the game because City basically didn't have a shot and like after the 55th minute or something absolutely ridiculous. They were all coming from from high turnovers uh, and pressing Chelsea, kind of ironically, I guess, given what we've, we've talked about City's press or being pressed. And it was, you know, very apparent that like Bunny and Chloe Kelly were really, you know, shouting at City to like move up the pitch so they could put Chelsea under pressure. And I think the problem with, with Alexandre is that she doesn't necessarily have the creativity that Kira Walsh obviously offered, which wouldn't have to be a problem, but you have to come up with different ways to progress the ball. And I don't know if City have have really got that yet. There was some like promising moments between like Kirsten Kasparai and, and Chloe Kelly, I thought, on, on the right. Kasparai, like there were moments she struggled, but I think she grew into the game. Uh, and I think she could be really good for City. But then, like, Leila Wahabi was obviously so distracted slash stressed out by Lauren James, understandably, that, like, there wasn't really much going on on that side either. So I think kind of City's problem is they need to figure out how they're getting the ball higher up the pitch. And it was interesting, like, Bunny Shaw dropped a lot more than she did in, in their opener. And it worked really well because, yeah, Chelsea were playing this double pivot of Aaron Cuthbert and Jesse Fleming, which... I mean, I adore, like, it's hilarious that Emma Hayes has this reputation, I guess, for being direct, counter-attacking, and now she's playing this incredibly technical midfield of tiny players, which just makes me laugh. But yeah, obviously when Bunny Shaw's careering into you, like, she was winning the ball and stuff, and she was causing problems there. But for me, it just, it doesn't all quite fit together for City. And I think this has always been the problem, right? Like, everyone knows they're good players, it's just the way they play together isn't always good. And that's down to Gareth Taylor. <clears throat> there was a moment at the game yesterday where Jesse and I have a group chat and we were talking about how good Bunny Shaw is. And who knew? Everyone but Gareth Taylor, apparently. <laughs> but yeah, speaking of criticizing Gareth Taylor is probably one of the best things that we can do on this podcast. You were there, Jesse, more kind of in person. You obviously got the feeling of maybe more body language from the players, the general overall feel that perhaps maybe Gary Taylor was a bit slow to make subs. It was kind of a weird one because I don't actually know what minute. I think Hayley Russo was the first player to come on, but it felt like that wasn't until like the 70th minute. And it's not like City are short on players at all. Yeah, Hayley Russo came on in the 79th minute. So he didn't make any subs before then. And they have options, you know, like they might not be options Taylor necessarily super trusts, but Rasso, Blackstad, players like that who did come on. And Agandon, Mary Fowler on the bench. Yeah. Like they did not touch the pitch. Yeah. And I just felt like you could tell that players were like knackered. There was one point where Fran Kirby received the ball just ahead of Laura Coombs. Laura Coombs had basically overstepped. And she probably could have, like, turned and put a tackle in. You could just see her turn, and she just looked exhausted. And and this is a player like Laura Coombs, who's not played a huge amount of minutes over the past couple of seasons. It's not necessarily surprising that maybe her match fitness isn't at a massive level. And so for someone like that to then be playing, like, 90 minutes... And even beyond the tiredness thing, it was just so obvious that, I mean, Chelsea scored at the best time, right? Like to score in like the 41st minute or whatever, just before half time. And I think because City had been growing it in the game, it really kind of took the wind out of their sails. But it was so obvious that City had just gone totally flat. Like there was no ideas. Some Chelsea fans, I think, were like feeling negative about the amount we created because obviously there wasn't 
I think we created like 1.5 XG from open play, which is like, I think that's fine against a team like City, plus the penalty. But, you know, it wasn't like we were like absolutely pelting the box, but I think we wanted to control the game and we did control the game. And it didn't feel particularly hard for us to control the game, especially when it was basically like, just give the ball to Lauren James and let her run around a bit and like watch City players kind of try and chase her. But it was just like, it it felt so obvious that just trying to do something was probably going to be better than the situation that they had. And that's kind of why it really surprised me that that Taylor seemed so reluctant to make any changes, especially like a player like Rasso, for example, who one, we saw in the FA Cup against Chelsea what an impact she made when she came on. Two, is basically a like-for-like player, right, for Chloe Kelly or a Lauren Hemp. So you don't even have to change that much of your, you know, your system for it to feel, like, different. And, you know, again, like, Bunny Shaw kind of came off and then Chloe Kelly was, like, playing as the nine for, like, the last, like, five minutes or so. And I don't know. I don't know whether it's worth trying to make sense of Gareth Taylor, but... It just felt like there were points that were really good in this game for City. And as I say, I think they were a lot better than they were last week. But it feels like he just shoots himself in the foot with things like this, like where he's not willing to make a change. Yeah, when it's clearly going very, very wrong in the sense that, you know, like a 2-0, 1-0, you can always get back in the game quite easily. But if you're making your changes in the 79th minute, then you're kind of not really giving your team any hope for it. He's basically saying go get the equalizer in 10 minutes and then that's it. But yeah, let's move on to the other game of the weekend. Um, not just the other game of the weekend, the other big game of the weekend, the North London Derby, Arsenal versus Spurs. Obviously, Jesse, do you want to talk about the attendance record? Oh my God. I do not want to talk about the attendance record. One, can I just say, I'm, I'm not going to be petty, but I am going to be a little bit petty, but I just don't understand why Arsenal are going on about this, like, number of tickets sold versus number of people who turned up. I'm sorry. An attendance record is who comes to the game. Like, I don't care if you sold more tickets, whatever. And I just thought it was weird because I was like, they smashed the attendance record. Like, the record that matters. It was, like, 10,000 more. Just celebrate that. Like, why are you adding on, like, another, like, 6,000? No one's no one's going to take that seriously. But I think what it is is because Arsenal always, when you get an Arsenal attendance record, normally it's tickets sold. So, really, we should probably be revising all of Arsenal's attendances down. But also, who cares? Calling for investigation. Look, in July, we had a Euros where loads of games were sold out. It culminated in, like, 90,000 people being at Wembley. In March and April... 90,000 people, more or less, went to watch Barcelona in the Champions League. We know people like going to watch women's football now. It's great. I love it. But I don't need to talk about it all the time because we know they like going to it now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, true. Like, it is... I, I like to casually mention it just to put it out there, but to have it as, like, a big headline and all this, all that, it's getting old now because it's happening so often. Like, if we keep talking about these attendance records, as they go on, we're going to be talking about them forever because it's now happening over and over and over and over again. I I do agree that we're kind of at the point where we could potentially stop emphasizing on it so much, if that makes sense. And that fact that, yeah, we can kind of go away from that and just enjoy and make it kind of more normal rather than keep talking about it. Talking about the match... Arsenal 4, Spurs nil. Boo, Rianne Skinner. <laughs> Jesse. Uh, Rahan, <laughs> why does she do this to me? Why? So for context, I didn't go to this game because I 
depending on who you believe, my joke on Twitter that I don't believe in game, WSL games that take place on a Saturday, or I don't care about attendances, or I actually just booked tickets to the cricket before they announced when this game was going to be. So I was watching it whilst I was at the cricket, and I was just like, this is bad. Because I was texting people, I was like, how are Spurs set up? Who is playing on the right for Spurs? I was texting people who were at the game. I was texting people who were watching the game at home. No one could tell me. And I was like, well, I'm glad it's not just me not paying attention. For me, I think that it's okay for a team not to be good at attacking. They are probably going to reach a ceiling. But if you're going to not be good at attacking, you need to be really good at defending. And this Spurs game, they were so, so bad at defending. I don't know what they were doing. That The hole that Beth Mead is in for that first goal is so large. So I've rewatched the game to just check that it wasn't because I had half an eye on the cricket. And I, I believe Amy Turner was supposed to be playing at right back. Is that what you came to? Really? You came to, Alex? Who did you think was playing? What did what formation did you think Spurs were playing? I thought Amy Turner was center back because she was quite central though, wasn't ah. she? Yeah, so I initially thought it was like a back three of like Zadorsky, Bartrip and Turner. But then I was like, so who's at right wing back? And I was like, there's no one there. So I think it was meant to be a back four with Neville kind of pushed pushed higher up and Turner at right back. Because you kind of see her like she goes and she'll get like caught up the pitch and then she'll run back like centrally. Yeah. But it was bad. It was really bad. I mean... Yeah, it's not like it made any difference, did it? Well, I, I mean, it might have made some difference, certainly on that first goal. And then, yeah, and then I was like, well, you know, they've made a mistake, but blah, blah, blah. They kind of settled down. And I was like, well, they could still kind of hold Arsenal to this, like, frustrating 1-0 game. And then Becky Spencer, I don't know what she's doing on that free kick. Sometimes when goalkeepers are, like, playing out from the back and it's, like, they're playing from the goal, I'm like, oh, these things happen, like, you get stressed, blah, blah, blah. There was no pressure on this. It was, like, from an offside, I think. Evelina Sumanen is not that far away from you. Like, how hard is it to play when you're standing still <laughs> to play an accurate pass to her feet? Sky Sports has it as a 3-4-3. Obviously, the Chelsea lineup didn't really go well for them. The Arsenal one is accurate. So, yeah. Skies with the three four three with Amy Lerner as the right centre back. Marley uh Bart Tripp as the middle and Shalina Zadorsky as the left centre back. Yes. And then Ashley Neville and Celine I'm not even gonna try to pronounce that her last name. Um as the wing backs. Yeah, there's no way Bize was not playing as a wing back. She was playing as the she was playing as the right winger, I think. If she yeah. was, if she was meant to be the wing, someone was really out of position, basically. <laughs> Either Amy Turner needed to be out wider or Celine Bizet needed to be lower. And I think it was that Amy Turner was supposed to be wider. But Arsenal did some interesting things, Alex. Yeah. Stina Blackstenius drops and Caitlin Ford as as the, as the number nine. What did you think? You know, I actually quite like it. You see, Stina Blackstenius and Caitlin Ford have such a different style of play. But I think... Christina Blackstenius is that pure nine that makes runs in behind. I mean, I'm not saying that's all she does because that's... Lena Hurtig would be more of that kind of static striker. Obviously, when she plays at the wing, she's not like that. But Dina Maxinius makes the runs in. She likes to be involved in, in the build-up. But I think Caitlin Ford is a step further than that. I think Caitlin Ford is a bit more dynamic in what she can do when she has the ball at her feet in the attacking position. I think Caitlin Ford has been playing really, really well. I think she's gotten into a decent rhythm so far this season. And she's really she's been really confident on the ball. 
and you can tell she's not scared to take on the 1v1 she's not scared to to make the pass give and goes she's very attack minded on top of that so i think i think Caitlin Ford as a nine could actually work really really well because she's like not that you know no one's matching Erin Cuthbert's energy <laughs> but Caitlin Ford reminds of that because she's just non-stop 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 and I think right now Arsenal still need to you know kickstart the season you know yeah they've won they've gotten decent results but essentially they're not really playing that well like you look at them play and they're getting goals because they're good but they're not really getting goals in the style that you would expect them to, if that makes sense. And I think I do like Caitlin Ford. I think she combines with the wingers a lot better than Blackstenius at, at this point in time. I think she's really, really good because of the confidence she has now. She has confidence to start scoring goals, I think, a bit more than Blackstenius and Lena Hurtick, for example. Another part of this game, I think the part of this game that I enjoyed the most was Katie McCabe. I love Katie McCabe on the left wing with Steph Catley behind because I think their ability to play together for some reason they just really understand each other which is not something I expected as much when Steph Catley first came to Arsenal but I think they understand each other really well and their dynamic of overlapping underlapping covering for each other works really 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 well and the confidence that Seth Catley has to go forward gives Katie McCabe you mentioned it here Jesse but able to tuck inside and create midfield overloads and then you just let Steph Catley go free on the wing which she's well capable of especially with her with her left foot she can put crosses in so I think that dynamic works really really well and I really like it but then again you you go on to the argument of does Katie McCabe start as a winger because then you obviously take away a position in this case, you take away Caitlin Ford's position, then the four goes into nine, then you take away Cena Black Senior's position, and then that goes on to knock off Lena Hurtig, essentially. Jesse, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think the way Katie McKay played in this game was really interesting. Obviously, it did feel like Spurs had concentrated a lot of their players around that that midfield area. They had Drew Spence and Cho playing there, and then Sumlin was kind of like sat on on Miedemar for most of the game. But the way McCabe was kind of tucking in quite a lot, obviously, gave Arsenal almost like a box where they had Kim Little, Leah Volte, Miedemar and, and McCabe. And I think it just like helped give Arsenal a bit of security. And then like you said, Alex, like, Catley was able to bomb down down the left side and and not only that then Caitlin Ford was able to drift out I mean I think occasionally there were points where because Caitlin Ford was kind of coming out to the space of the left you needed someone like Viv to be making the runs more direct runs into the box or or Beth Mead and that I think definitely in that kind of first half before Arsenal got their second goal there were moments where there were like balls kind of coming into the box and there was no one really there or the balls needed to be pulled back rather than fired kind of quickly um, across the six yard box. But I definitely felt to give credit to Idabal rather than just like shitting on on Skinner, that adjustment and, and being able to use McCabe in that way. And that's why McCabe's so useful, right? Because because she can do the defensive stuff, she can do the attacking stuff. Like she's a player who you can really repurpose to rather than just having her in a position. It's about giving her a set of like tactical tasks. And I think that this showed this game showed really well why she's she's good at that and why so many managers were like, we'll get McCabe into the into the team no matter what. I was also like you have to play Katie McCabe for a North London derby. Um, so <laughs> you've got to find somewhere to Pretty put much. her in the team because you cannot have her miss out on that game. 
but yeah I, I thought that that was really interesting and I thought you know generally because I was at the Ajax game midweek and the Arsenal were like absolute dross but I felt like in this game they were a lot better at having it felt like Kim Little got a lot closer to Leah Volti so that when the ball came into Volti it wasn't just like her only option was to kind of play it back to Leah or Rafaela and then Kim Little I thought had a very good game as well just being you know just kind of like turning and going with the ball so yeah I did think like this was a much more improved performance from Arsenal but with the caveat that I think Spurs had 0.06 expected goals from this match which is just for a team that's supposedly like challenging for a third place spot is is really bad and you know they've played Leicester and Arsenal one of those teams should be easier than the other they've scored two goals and they've both been like long-range screamers I know they've got new attacking players coming in and and maybe that's something like we're going to see them develop over the season but right now it feels a a pretty poor start for Spurs it's the same problems that we've been talking probably for the last two seasons about Spurs is that how they have no attack and it's a very big problem. We've been talking about Spurs in the sense that they had a lot of potential to break into that top four, but they can't score goals. So you can't really give them anything. You can't really expect much from them because as you, like they're just not good enough and it doesn't make any sense because Rian Skinner has... She doesn't have, you know, the top players of the league, but she has good enough players to be able to create something that's good enough to progress against, you know, top teams. But we haven't really seen that. And it's quite, well, it's not frustrating for me because I don't really care, but <clears throat> it is frustrating to see a good enough team not reach their potential at all because of a simple problem that is, you know, it's not simple and, you know, finding the right players, et cetera, but it's such a it's such an obvious kind of problem that they're having and they're not really finding a solution for it. So I don't really know what needs to be done internally. But enough about England. Let's move on to Spain. And before before we start talking about the matches, Jesse, shall we talk about someone worse than Gareth Taylor? <laughs> someone even worse than Gareth Taylor. Yes. <laughs> Can you imagine? Jorge Villa. Should I try to summarize this for one minute? <laughs> yeah, yeah, one minute. One minute summary for anyone okay. who, who's, who's missed this. Okay. Jorge Villa has been in charge of the Spanish national team since 2015, seven years now. In these seven years, Spain has never made it past a quarterfinal of a major tournament. Any other federation, men or women, would probably be like, right, it's time, you know, to, to let you go. But in this case, uh, Jorge Villa just got extended for two, was it two or three years, Jesse? Mm. It was until... Was it till 2025, of, maybe? I don't know. It might have been. I think it was after the Olympics. Right. I think it was after that. So anyway, two, three years extension before the Euros. So Jorge Villa goes into these Euros. Not really, you know, I'm not saying that he did, but he has the the comfort of not really caring what's going to happen because he's settled in for two, three years. And so the players are starting, you know, to to get impatient because essentially we're talking about, you know, the best players in the world, like Sepotea, Saitana Bormati, Patrick Harro, you know, all the Barca, all the Real Madrid players, you know, I think I think everybody, especially listen to Box Box, I think you know how good these Spanish players are. And it, it sucks to be part of a team knowing how good you are. Like these players are not, 
you know, they're not dumb. They know how good they are compared to the rest of the world. When you feel like that and you see that you're not getting anywhere with the Spanish national team, you start to wonder. So now the players are starting to speak up. It all started with a call with the president of the federation. And now this is where it gets good. The president of the federation is best buddies with Jorge Villa, which is where the problem comes in. What I understand was that Jorge Villa's father was on the board of the federation that got Rubiales the presidency for the federation. So essentially, Jorge Villa's position is kind of a favor to his dad, um, that he has this position. And he has, Jorge Villa has a full backing of the federation. All these calls with the players, Rubiales pretty much said, as long as I'm president of the federation, Jorge Villa is here to stay, basically. So the most recent advancement has been that 15 players, mostly from Barca, um, which include Padre Jaro, Claudia Pina, Onabaye, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 15 players from the national team have now resigned from the national team until there is change. And the federation responded to that saying, okay, we don't care. You're not coming back onto the national team until you, and I quote, realize your error and apologize. And essentially said they're threatening also with two to five years of basically taking away your professional contract and you're unable to play professional level as a player. So these 15 players are not just doing it as a protest or a strike. You know, they are risking essentially being able to play for a few years, which is, you know, obviously very, very bad. But I think I think that was more than a minute, but I think <laughs> it was necessary. But I think that's I think that covered most of it. But essentially, 15 players are now resigning from the national team until there is change. And the infuriating part of all of this is that the federation clearly does not give a shit about women's football and does not give a shit about maximizing anything. And their answer is pretty solid in the sense that they genuinely don't care and that Jorge Villa is going to stay there no matter what, and you kind of just have to deal with it. But yeah, Jesse, what do you think of this? Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I assume kind of squads are coming out this week for the international break, which is coming up. So if they're sticking to their guns on Builder, it's going to be a very interesting Spain squad, which not only will presumably have most of their best players not involved, but I think will also put a lot of pressure on those players who are still involved because they kind of look like traitors um, by being part of the team. Yeah, I mean, it's just so embarrassing from the Spanish Federation, I think, because it just feels like they've tied themselves up into this position where they can't now back down on Jorge Vilda because they've so been so big on him. And it's like they're now just in this standoff. And like, I genuinely don't quite see how it's resolved. Obviously, the easy answer is like, they sack Builder, but I just don't know if that's going to happen. It's frustrating because they're so set on it. But what I find really interesting is that how big this has been magnified. The fact that, you know, Mega Rampino, Alex Morgan, it's going very global. And I feel like it's going to be very hard for the Federation to get away with it. I feel like before the minimum visibility of the Spanish league that has been there for years. It's been quite easy for them to get away with a lot of things. Does that make sense? You know, you see clubs, you know, Rayo, Rayo Vallecano, 
that last season that they had was just an absolute disaster. And that was genuinely a very, very bad, toxic club. But they got away with a lot of things because not everyone, you know, outside of Spain, people don't really know about it. So with the Federation not really giving a shit about anything, you can get away with a lot of things. But now that this story has kind of gone globally, I'm kind of curious to see what the Federation does with a certain amount of pressure that they've never really experienced before on a women's football front. So I, I am curious to see if maybe, you know, media and, and all these things kind of play a part in pressurizing the Federation to actually do something, which is a bit of a shame. But and again, it's infuriating because the Federation doesn't give a shit and they're not going to do anything unless they're forced to, essentially. But yeah, and on another note, the Federation also said in the communication was that the future of the national team is a success of all the youth national teams which the under-20s won the World Cup, the under-17s, I was I think they won the Euros this summer. So they kind of said, to hell with you, we have younger players coming through that are going to do your job, basically, which I found really funny. Okay, let's mention one thing from the Barcelona game. Barcelona Villarreal, Barcelona won, big surprise. Jesse, do you want to describe that Mapileon goal? Yeah, I mean, if there was one thing to talk about from Spain, like maybe it should be that goal. I don't know. Uh, yeah, Mapileon scored like an absolutely ridiculous free kick, which was just... I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It was like the ball perfectly went like a rocket pace into like the top of the net. I think she laced that. I yeah. don't think it was inside of the foot placement free kick. No, I think she laced that. She just that. put a boot for it. That was outside. It wasn't like a free kick, you know, where they're like almost like they're always rising. It wasn't like it was rising up into the roof of the net. It blew at the angle into the roof of the net. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, it made on the physics level, it made no sense. Because the way she hit it, she hit it so direct that you would have expected it to hit the wall because of how low it was. Yeah, it was like, you know, a free kick usually there inside of the foot, curling, top bends, whatever, easy. But she just kind of stuck her boot through it and like just the power that she got behind it was just stupid and it made no sense but if you haven't watched it watch it and I do I do feel bad because Oshwala scored a really nice goal too from outside the box she chipped the keeper from outside the box on her first touch from a Mariona assist and that was actually really really nice but obviously overshadowed by mm-hmm. this very very nice Mapileon goal Barcelona having their own uh, goal of the month competition what's what's new yeah basically and I do have to say that I really like Kira Walsh yeah you think Kira Walsh is good you think she's gonna be a popular player? <laughs> Alex Ibaceta's scouting scouting business. Kira Walsh good at football. <laughs> Basically. If in case nobody else knew. <laughs> you know, she's gonna she's gonna be a big player. Just keep an eye on her. Watch out. <laughs> no, it's frustrating because I really love Ingrid Engen as a player. Um Ingrid Engen started this game and then Kira Walsh came on after. The midfields, obviously, without Alexia Potellas this time, it was Ingrid Engen as a pivot, Padre Jarro and Mariona as the other two in the midfield. We all know how good Ingrid Engen was at Wolfsburg. And I think that was kind of down to the fact that Lena Alberdorf was also playing as centre-back. <laughs> Fun days. Yeah, so Ingrid Engen hasn't really... She's good. I mean, don't get me wrong. She is really, really... You know, she's really good. She still is able to do the role at a good enough level for Barcelona, which is obviously very high level. But the, dy- the dynamic that Kira Walsh brings is more similar to Patrick Caro. I feel like Ingrid Engen is still kind of, she's not she's not as confident as she was when she was at Wolfsburg. She's, I think she's very like shy in the way she plays football. And she tries, she, maybe she's overthinking a bit in the sense that she's trying to do everything right. And she's not able to express herself 
as a footballer just yet. Once she's playing for Barcelona, which is a bit of a shame, because that's what made her so good at Wolfsburg. But I think Kira Walsh is much closer to Patri Haro's style of play, which obviously suits Barcelona perfectly. And I think also when you have Mariona in the midfield, Mariona drops in a lot. So if you look at the way these three played yesterday, their changing in position was very, very fluid. You know, Patri Haro would drop, Ingrid Engen would go up, Mariona would drop, Ingrid Engen would be the 10. Like their change of position was very fluid, which it worked out really well. But I just don't think that suits Ingrid Engen as good as it does Kira Walsh, for example. So it's a bit of a shame, but that's my opinion. I think Kira Walsh has suits Barcelona really, really well. And I do feel bad when I get she is a very, very good player. But moving on to Germany, Wolfsburg to Hoffenheim one. Jule Brand, Jesse? Oh, Jule Brand, yeah. So Hoffenheim kind of went 1-0 up with this bizarre kind of Olympico goal from Naschenbeng. And then... It was such a classic Hoffenheim performance where we're very good at playing the ball in their own half and then quite willing to sit back. Um, and Wolfsburg weren't very good at all. But then Jill Rod and Eula Brand scored in the 85th and 89th minute. So Wolfsburg won 2-1. So annoying. It was like, obviously, it was always felt like Eula Brand was going to score, I feel like, in this game. Yeah, obviously, Hoffenheim have a long history of of losing players to, to Wolfsburg. There were three three in this team, Lapvine, Basmuth and, and Brand. So yeah, it, it was it was an interesting one. I didn't think Wolfsburg were very good. And I think Tommy Stroot does have this kind of problem of, of how he fits everyone in. Jill Rod came on at half time for Basmuth and, and they looked better when Rod was on, but then they had this weird thing where they were playing Rod like at the 10, they pushed Pop up and then they played Eva Payor like more as like a left winger and that was like a bit strange and then they kind of brought Eula Brand on like 20 minutes into the second half and and then it all got a bit more fluid but it just kind of shows you like we keep talking about all of Wolfsburg's attacking options and you know John Stottick came on for like a minute at, right at the very end and it's just kind of interesting because I wonder if Wolfsburg thought this was maybe the season where Pop and Huth like maybe started to move out of the team but they had such good Euros that obviously they're going to carry on playing yeah and I feel like they've got a bit of a task on their hands, keeping everyone happy. I think this was like a good thing to maybe show that Wolfsburg aren't as invincible as maybe they look on paper because Hoffenheim had opportunities to score like as Wolfsburg were going forward more as well. Like they could have got a second, to be honest. Uh, and yeah, I think the interesting thing from Hoffenheim was they started Gia Corley kind of as a central striker. I don't know if Nicola Biller was like not quite fit. She came on for like the heart, last half hour or so. But I think this is a really big season for Corley. She kind of left... Bayern Munich to come and play for Hoffenheim, but I think it hasn't really kicked on maybe like everyone expected her to. But now there's kind of a lot of more pressure on her, I think, with like brands leaving. And, you know, Hoffenheim have brought like kind of these new exciting younger players in, but Corley's been there for like a season, two or two seasons, maybe even now. So, yeah, it wasn't like a classic, I've got to be honest, but it was still interesting, an interesting game, I think. And, but yeah, it would have been fun for Hoffenheim to win because I think that would have really like blown the Frauen Bundesliga wide open. Maybe that's why I like Hoffenheim because they also know the pain of inevitably losing to Wolfsburg regardless. Maybe that's my connection. I think yeah, we're, I think I think everybody was hot on Wolfsburg this season considering the team that they have. But it is it is quite interesting to watch preseason and all these different things that Wolfsburg and Bayern Munich are not as invincible as we thought they would be. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, because you look at the goals in these games, you know, look at the Gerard Gore Yule Brand goal. They were both off of very easy, essentially tap ins because it hit the post or it hit another player. Goal, the keeper saved it like it was very it was very very dull but I think Champions League will start soon in October and I'm very excited to see 
even Chelsea, like Chelsea Wolfsburg, I'm excited to see all these kind of teams that I think are have essentially not in a bad way, but they've kind of dropped off a level when they've been at their peak in the last few seasons. But it is the start of the season, of course. So I'm just gonna stop talking. But we'll we'll leave it there. And yeah, thank you for listening to Box to Box Euros. We hope that you enjoyed it and we'll be back soon because we have qualifiers and more WSO and La Liga and everything. And I'm very happy that the season has started again. <laughs> but yeah, thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you soon. Bye.